24 tonight, Acts chapter 24, as we continue our study, this is our third to last sermon. So somebody, even if you don't vocally say it, I'm sure is rejoicing about that. This has been a good long journey. We've been here since June of last year, and we will wrap up probably by the end of this month, if my math is right. And I'm looking forward to uh, studying 1 Corinthians together. We'll probably take a couple weeks off and doing different things, um, but I'm looking forward to that study. I've already been reading and, and preparing and praying for that. But tonight we're going to be in Acts 24, and we're going to be covering a lot of ground. Now, I'm curious if there's anyone who happened to read these three chapters before tonight's sermon. Is there anybody? There's a reward for you if you honestly raise your hand. All right. Well, I didn't emphasize as much as I'd planned to, so I don't fault you too much, but we are going to cover three chapters, 86 verses, three, two legal trials and one private legal hearing, and actually our three chapters tonight cover two and a half years of Paul's life. So I wonder if there'd be a volunteer who'd be willing to read these 86 verses for us. Or maybe a church vote. Would you like me to read them or would you like me to just cover them? The church vote, all in favor, say amen. All right. I'm not going to read it all because um, I want to preach, not just read. And so I want you to understand this, that the reason I'm preaching such a large section is I really believe that these three trials have a lot of the same themes. They're going to cover a lot of the same territory. And so that's why I want to group them together. It's not just because I'm trying to finish as fast as possible. And the way we're going to break down the message tonight, if you're taking notes, is we're going to talk about three trials and three principles, okay? Three trials and three principles. What you're going to find in this section is there's three different trials that don't go Paul's way. But by the end, we recognize they go God's way. Three different rulers that refuse to do the right thing, but what we're going to see tonight is that this story will strangely unfold how their injustices served to further God's agenda. Hopefully, at the very least, you read this week after 4th of July, and you're, you become thankful for our justice system, because um, though it may have flaws here and there, Paul is encountering a totally different justice system with a totally different amount of unfairness. And we're going to see that Paul's going to un encounter unfair situations in life, times where he gets the short end of the stick. You ever felt like that? How am I supposed to find good in this unfair treatment? What happens when it feels like I'm being targeted by someone who doesn't like me? How do I respond when I'm suffering but those who are doing the wrong things are prospering. This text seems to give us an idea of what to do. And so again, I want us to cover this in three trials and three principles. Maybe as you're taking notes, you might try and guess as we tell these stories what God is trying to speak to us, what these principles are. So here are the three trials. Here's number one. I want you to see, and I want, I want us to just understand what's going on in Paul's trial before Felix. That's what all of chapter number 24 is about. And if you remember from last week, all of this is happening because this guy Lysias in Jerusalem doesn't want to touch Paul's case, right? You remember, he, he gets Paul, he lets Paul speak to the crowd and he gets Paul back and, he, and then he writes a letter and he says, 
I protected this guy, but like many employees do with difficult situations, they just let the boss figure it out. You know what I mean? I'm just going to send that up to management. I don't want to touch this one. That's what Lysias did, and that's why this ended up in Felix's court. And in verses 1 through 2, we find out that here Paul is going to stand before trial, and it's not fair battlegrounds. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 24. After five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who had informed the governor against Paul. This is, uh, if you didn't catch it, this is their hired lawyer. Well, who's Paul's hired legal counsel? Nobody. So Tertullus, again, begins to accuse him, verse number two, And he kind of starts off his whole speech with this big flowery, like, pat on the back to Felix, which if you read history, Felix was a really, really bad leader, right? But you know what any politician likes is compliments. And so he starts off his legal defense that way, and then he lays out his case in verses 5 and 6. So here's this high-profile paid lawyer against Paul who has no legal representation, and he lays out his case. Verse number 5, he says, Paul is a plague to society. He's a pestilent fellow. You ever called someone that? Probably not. He stirs up riots and seditions among the Jews, he says in verse number five. Verse number five, he says he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And in verse six, he really gets to his main accusation. He says, this man tried to defile our temple, and then Paul gets to speak. It's his turn. It's a courtroom, after all. Now, I want you to notice how Paul, in his defense, always points to his integrity. Look at verse number 11 through 13. And I think what he's saying in verse 11 through 13 is he's saying, nothing that Tertullus has said about me can be proven. He points to his integrity. He says, verse number 11, thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for the worship. I wasn't even there long enough to start a riot. And they didn't find me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Verse number 16 says something very striking that ought to convict all of us that Paul says, I take great pains. Look at verse 16. I do exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. That ought to convict us. That ought to be our goal, that we work to be blameless before God and before men. And Paul then says, hey, listen, this whole thing, it's not about me stirring up riots. It's about a theological disagreement. Do they believe in the resurrection or do they not? That's what verses 14 through 15 are saying. He says to Felix, this is about a religious disagreement, okay? But here's what's striking to me about this first trial, Even though Paul is outgunned by a high-profile, fancy lawyer, his integrity spoke for itself. Paul didn't need a good lawyer to be believed because Paul had integrity. And we seem to get the idea, though Felix doesn't render any sort of legal judgment, we seem to get the idea that Felix thought Paul was innocent. After he heard everything out, he thought Paul was innocent because in verse number 23, it says that Felix gave Paul some cushy prison arrangements, much, much nicer than you would normally give somebody who's trying to burn down society. Verse number 23, it says, and he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. 
and basically said he can have anyone else come into his little jailhouse here that he wants. But even though Paul was innocent, chapter 24 kind of ends on a sad note. Look at verse 27. It gives us the idea that Paul was left in prison for two years. The victim of political posturing, if you will. Because what what the verses prior are saying is that Felix was trying to use Paul as a way to get favor with the people he was doing really bad in the polls with, the Jews. And so he's trying to figure out a way to um, give Paul back over to them, but Paul's really innocent, so he can't really do that. And then he goes and visits Paul, and he says, well, maybe Paul will just give me a bribe, and at least I can make some money out of this. And Paul won't even do that because he has too much integrity to do that. So he just leaves him there until somebody else takes his place. So the next guy who takes his place is Festus in chapter 25. That's the second trial. Now Festive, Festus, not Festive, he's a little more decisive than Felix. He's not, he seems to be a little bit more vocal about his opinion. Felix seems to be the wishy-washy politician. Festus, he plays the political game too. Look at verse uh, three of chapter 25. He desired favor against him. Chapter 25, verse number nine, he was willing to do the Jews a pleasure. So he's still playing the political game and Paul's on the short end of that stick. And so he invites the Jews once again to, invite, to come up to Caesarea and have a trial against Paul. Hey, this is the same thing they did two years prior. Hello, apparently in Rome, they didn't have a law against double jeopardy. I mean, they just, hey, let's just do this again. And so Paul shows up in the courtroom again and the Jews who are accusing him show up again. They must hate this guy a lot because two years later, they still want to travel all the way to Caesarea and have a court fight against him. And the trial's really the same thing. It's a rehash. Chapter 25, verse number seven, they make silly accusations that they could not prove. Look at verse 27. They laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. And then Paul's integrity speaks for itself once again. Look at verse number eight. While he answered for himself, and he says, I have not offended anything at all. Verse number 10. I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. But then this takes a weird turn because Festus is sick of dealing with this. So he says, you know what, Paul? And actually, his legal reasoning was actually proper. He said, this isn't, this isn't in our jurisdiction. So you know what, Paul? I'm going to send this back to the, the Jerusalem legal authorities. Now, that's not a good idea for Paul. Because the people in Jerusalem want to kill him, right? They're, they're bad people. And Paul sees that. And so Paul recognizes his only way out of this trial is to appeal to Caesar. And I don't know how to explain this other than this. It's kind of like you and I have a right to appeal to the Supreme Court if we feel like the lower courts have got something wrong. It was kind of similar in Roman days. They could appeal to Caesar. I mean, if you were a Roman citizen, which Paul was, you could stand before, face to face, the guy who ruled all of Rome. That's pretty amazing. That's a lot of rights there. And so Paul says, okay, 
um, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to offload me and you're trying to get me killed. So I'm just going to appeal to Caesar and I'm going to go there. And then the, the account ends. Uh, later on, Festus makes this comment. You know, if this guy hadn't appealed to Caesar, I probably may have let him go. But you don't get in the way of Caesar. Trial number two. Trial number three, it's really more of a private hearing, is with King Agrippa. The way the story goes is it just so happens that Festus, or sorry, King Agrippa comes into town when Festus is trying this case. And King Agrippa, he's not really in the Roman um, hierarchy. He's more like this regional ruler of the Jews. He's actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember what Herod the Great did, right? He tried to kill all the babies when Jesus was born. This is his grandson. And he's probably not much better than his grandfather, to be honest. Maybe a little bit better and a little less crazy. But he's still not a good dude. But he knows more about Judaism. He actually has Jewish blood in his veins. And so Paul stands before Agrippa and the whole thing goes over again. In chapter 26, verses four through eight, Paul's again in a somewhat of a private setting. There seems to be an audience here of some sort. Paul lays out his legal defense in chapter 26, verses four through eight. He basically says this, I'm innocent. I've done nothing wrong. This is all about a religious dispute. But what's interesting about Paul's appearance before Agrippa is that the courthouse turns into a church house. And Paul starts preaching a sermon to Agrippa. He preaches the gospel to him the same way he preached the gospel, by the way, to Felix in chapter 24, verse 25. But in chapter 26, verse 27, after giving his whole testimony, again, I think this is the third time in the book of Acts that Paul gives his testimony. He's doing it before a king. You remember God said to Paul, you would stand before kings. And here he is. And he's preaching the gospel faithfully. And I love chapter 26, verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Verse 29, he says, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. Look back at 24, verse 25, when he's talking to Felix. Felix is there to get some money out of Paul, which actually was illegal in the Roman court system, and Paul has so much integrity. What a contrast. This guy's trying to get an illegal bribe, and Paul preaches, look at verse 25, he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Man, what a, what a great example to us that is. And when he preaches to Agrippa, Agrippa has this really interesting response. You've probably heard a preacher quote this along the way. In chapter 26, verse 28, he says, almost thou persuadest me to be Christian. Now, there's two ways you can read that. Keep in mind, church, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek and Hebrew. In Greek, there, there are no question marks in first century Greek. So it could either be Agrippa saying, oh, you almost got me, Paul. Or it could be him mocking Paul and saying it like this. Are you gonna persuade me to be a Christian in a short time? I tend to think that's really what the idea there is, is he's mocking Paul. You think, dude, you could stand before me in a few minutes and, and try and convince me 
to be a Christian? I've been a Jew my whole life. Who do you think you are? It's the same way Festus responded. He mocked Paul just a few verses prior and said, look at verse 24. He said, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. Paul, you're crazy. Can you guess how this one ends? Well, you probably figured it out. It's not Agrippa doing the right thing and letting Paul go even though he thought he was innocent. Look at the end of chapter 26. I believe it says that he thinks he was innocent. Look at verse 32. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. He could have set him free. But it, it wasn't good for his employment, so to speak. It wasn't a good move. So you know what he said? Ah, let him go to Caesar. So what do we learn from these trials? There's three principles, and we'll be done. Here's the first one. I think Paul shows us that integrity matters. Integrity matters. The dominant note in this section is Paul is standing before these legal experts, these, these judges, these rulers who are hearing not only his side, but the side of the people accusing him, and none of them, none of them can come up with anything to accuse Paul of. And Paul knows it. You know, he points it out. And what's interesting to me is this reminds me so much of the story of Jesus, doesn't it? Doesn't it remind you of when Jesus stands before Pilate and he, he, he stands before Pilate and Pilate says, I don't, I don't have nothing to accuse this man of. In fact, what does he do? He washes his hands. And just like Felix, just like Festus, just like Agrippa, he doesn't want to make the right decision on his own. He says, well, let someone else figure it out. Paul has that same Christ-like integrity, and I think that Paul's integrity is supposed to remind us of Christ's integrity, and Christ's integrity is supposed to point to us the integrity you and I should have. We should have such integrity that people can't have a way to bring an accusation against us. Paul's example reminds us that Christians don't play dirty even when all the rest of the world is playing dirty. Felix wants a bribe, Paul doesn't give him a bribe. The lawyers of the Jews in Jerusalem is exaggerating and lying, and Paul doesn't play that game either. Christians don't bribe, Christians don't lie, Christians don't steal, Christians don't stir up riots, Christians don't cause disorder in society. Christians recognize that pagans do bad things, but that doesn't mean that they should do bad things. Christians recognize they may be able to get away with it in the court of the law, but Christians recognize they live for a higher court that has more authority, the court of heaven. That's Paul's example. And I love Paul's statement in chapter 24 that he had done everything he could to have a clear conscience before God and man. Church, I wonder if you and I could say the same. Are we focused tonight? I wonder if you and I could say the same that we've done everything in our power to have a clear conscience before God and men. Listen, man may not see your wrongdoing, but God always will. There's ways to get around tax laws. There's ways to fudge the numbers. 
There's ways to manipulate a story and that person will never know you lied because it proves your case better if you tell it the way you're gonna tell it. But Christians don't do things based on the sake of convenience or what gets their way. Christians do things based on how it stands before God on the day of judgment. Integrity matters. You know what? And I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is a problem for anybody. I'm just thinking, isn't that a much easier way to live? I'm going to ask this side. Isn't that a much easier way to live? To just do the right thing? You know, I, in times of my life where I lied or tried to cover things up, man, it's stressful. You got you to remember, you almost got to write it down if you're going to do it the right way. But man, it's just so much easier. It's so much less stress if you don't have to manicure your image and pretend to be one person at church and one person at home. It's just easier to live with integrity before God and be the same person everywhere and be a person who lives with the righteousness of Christ. That's principle number one. Here's principle number two. It's maybe less encouraging, but it's realistic nonetheless. I think Luke is showing us that God's people will normally be outgunned and unfairly treated by the enemies of God. Remember, he's writing to people who are probably in a worse situation than Paul was legally and and in terms of their relationship with the government. Here's the reality. It doesn't matter sometimes how much integrity Paul had. He was up against world forces that would not do the right thing. They would let him go if he gave him a bribe, right? But they were gonna use him as a political pawn if they could get some popularity with the people. They, they wouldn't let him go if it meant that they were cross with their boss, Caesar. And so they didn't care about doing the right thing. And Luke is really highlighting, I think, that Christians, we ought to expect, we ought to not be surprised, we ought even not to be too frustrated by the fact that we seem outgunned and outmanned by the enemies of God. God's enemies have better lawyers, They've got bigger bank accounts. They've got organizations that their entire job is to tear down the religious substructure of our country. They don't play by the rules. And I think the Bible, rather than being overly and unfairly optimistic, is realistic, and it's telling us that it's going to happen. We're going to be outgunned. We're going to be outmanned. And God's word never seems to give us the idea that all of the structures of the government will one day be turned over to Christians. No. The end of the book is pretty clear. The beast and the false prophet and the serpent have control of everything. There is no golden age of government, friend. If you're looking for that, you're probably going to be looking for eternity until Jesus comes. Because it's not going to happen. The culture war, I don't think, and I'm not trying to be a surgeon, I'm just trying to be realistic. It's not going to be won by Christians. We live in a world corrupted by sin. And the only solution to this world is Jesus coming and finally and fully defeating the serpent, which he does in Revelation chapter number 20. That's not what John said to his his believers who are struggling with the government, struggling with oppression, and struggling with the moral corruption of society. You can't even do business unless you compromise your morals with the Roman pagans. He doesn't say, hey, listen, why don't you get out there, vote, vote your conscience, and it'll all get better. 
You know, we need, we need to just be more strategic about getting the right people in the right places in the House of Representatives. Hey, I'm all, I'm all for that. I'm pretty involved with politics, I think, to the extent that's healthy. But I'm just being honest, Christian. Our hope is not in the government. Our hope is not in local politics. Our hope is in Jesus Christ coming to reign once again and setting up his rule on this earth. So instead of hoping that everything will just be turned over and, boy, I just wish our government would act more like Christians, (laughs) we say, come, Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here's the last principle. God ultimately wins by using persecution to propel his plans. There's so many messed up things that take place in these chapters. I mean, how disappointing. Like, I know I went over it really quickly, but two years rotting in prison, that's a bummer. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Somebody help me out here. I know, some of you are all distracted, and I get it. I get it. Weird start to the service. But let's tune in for like five minutes. So many messed up things. Rotting in prison. Unfair court trials. Self-interested rulers. But if you're not reading carefully, you might miss that because of all that weird, messed up junk, God's word comes to pass. Look at Acts 9, verse 15. Turn to Acts 9, verse 15. This is one of God's first words to Paul when he's saved. Verse 15 of chapter 9, the Lord said unto him, go thy way, This is to Ananias. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and then what? Kings and the children of Israel. Chapters 24 through 26 are Paul bringing God's name before kings. And what's so challenging to me church family, is that when Paul stands before the most powerful people in his circle of the world, he still shares the gospel with them. Look at chapter 24, verse 25. You remember this? Chapter 24, verse 25. Let's look back at 24, 24. And after certain days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. You're like, oh, this guy, this guy's interested. Well, keep reading And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. So here's Paul standing before Felix, preaches the gospel. So much so that a man who's in charge of a chunk of the Roman Empire is shaking in his boots understanding the judgment of God. Paul also shares the gospel with Agrippa, doesn't he? Verses 12, in chapter 26, verse 12, 
all the way through verse 23, Paul shares his testimony before Agrippa. And he confronts him in verse number 27 and 29 and and tries to bring him to a point of decision with the gospel. What I want you to understand this is that Paul didn't get to stand before Felix and Agrippa because he he had a good network. It wasn't because he was involved in the chamber of commerce. He stood before the kings of society because he was persecuted and unfairly moved on to the next guy to try his case. How's that for God having the one up? God says, I'm going to take injustice and I'm going to use it to advance my plan. And sure enough, it lands Paul all the way in Rome where God wanted him to go from the beginning. And here's Paul. And when he stands before kings, he has the boldness and the courage to share Jesus with them. Christian, I wonder, I wonder if you and I would do the same. Would you? If you stood before a powerful man who could choose whether you lived or die, would you share the gospel? I don't know if I'll ever have that opportunity. But you know what? I think your best indicator of whether you'll share the gospel with a king is whether or not you'll share the gospel with your neighbor or your coworker. I think Luke in some ways is pointing the finger back at the first century Christians and he's saying, Paul's willing to share a gospel with a guy who could take his life. Why aren't you sharing the gospel with other people who won't take your life? It's the same boldness that Jesus had, didn't he? And Christians, the same boldness of the Holy Spirit is within you that you can have too. You can share the gospel because the gospel is for everybody. Rich and famous and powerful or poor and needy and broke and outcast in society. And and here in this three-chapter large section that's so easy to kind of forget where you're at in reading it, here God is accomplishing his plan to get Paul to Rome. He's not using a a first-class plane ticket. He's not using Paul's network. He's not using Paul's advancement in society or in his career to get the gospel farther. God is using unfair people, things that seem like mistakes. I wonder what God could be using in your life that right now looks like a mistake. But he's using it to move his plan forward. You might say, well, God doesn't have this big plan for me to go here or there with the gospel, Pastor Mike. No, no, he doesn't. Probably, you want to share the gospel right where you're at. That's God's plan for you. But doesn't God use even the bad stuff to advance his one plan he has for all of us? The the plan that Romans 8 says he predestinated from the beginning of the world to conform you into the image of his son for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Friend, there are things that could seem like mistakes, that seem like, you know, out of left field, that seem unfair. But I could tell you this, I don't know how God's gonna use it, but I know he wants to use it in your life to make you better. Life doesn't have to go your way to accomplish God's plans. I think so many of us, we're really focused on whether or not life is going our way. God sometimes has bigger plans. I think that this passage tonight gives us hope when nothing is going our way. 
Faith, when the future seems bleak, and at the very least reminds us God is in control when it feels like life is so out of control. But Paul's example challenges us this way. When God gives you the opportunity, will you speak or will you not? And I'm going to venture to say he gives us more opportunities than we take. Is that fair? Is that fair? He gives us more opportunities than we take. Me included, by the way. Me included. So let's take some more. Let's pray and ask God to do that tonight. Let's pray in response to the message tonight. I want to give you a couple